and welcome to Unfinished Unpublished, the programme celebrating projects that never got finished, that have yet to be finished or that never made it out into the world. My name's Emily Anderson and this week my guest is Adam Smith, who's a professor of English Literature and the History of the Book at Balliol College, Oxford University. Adam recently published a fascinating article in which he lists a series of 23 projects that he started working on, but which he describes as abandoned or failed. As you can imagine, I was pretty excited when I came across his list because it more or less makes him the perfect guest, and I was very pleased that he agreed to have a chat with me. You can read his article on his website, which is adamsmith.substack.com. Adam works mainly on early modern writing and its material forms. Right now he's editing Pericles for Arden Shakespeare and writing a trade book about the biography of important makers of books. Adam is also the co-editor with Jill Partington and Simon Morris of a new journal about material texts. It's called Inscription and you can find it at inscriptionjournal.com. I've put the links to the journal and to Adam's website in the show notes. I spoke to Adam about, among other things, how you could write an autobiography out of unfinished projects, about how hitting a dead end can tell you what a project should really be about, and why the list may be the ultimate form for unfinished work. One of the reasons that I really enjoyed talking to Adam was that I think like a lot of successful academics, he seems to have a knack of turning a question on its head. So, for example, he recognises that everyone shares an urge to say that projects are never really abandoned and that even unfinished work feeds into other things. And certainly that idea has come up a few times before now on this programme. But Adam also thinks that we should try to be a bit braver about recognising when we really and truly have walked away from something and that sometimes we should be brave enough to completely let go of a project and admit that that's what's happened. I should also let you know that, slightly embarrassingly for me, my side of the conversation kept dropping out and refusing to record while I was interviewing Adam. Luckily he was very patient with me, but towards the end of our chat the recording issues meant that I couldn't hear what he was saying about why it might not always be a great idea for academics to start writing their own poetry, so that's why it sounds like I just sort of ignore him at that point. Okay, I think that's plenty from me to be getting on with, so finally a reminder that if you have an unfinished or unpublished project that you'd like to talk about, you can email me at unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com, or you can also follow me on Twitter at truebagglerag. So I'll start off by asking you about your article on incomplete projects and I have to say I found your list of your 23 abandoned projects completely astonishing partly because some of them are really quite big projects that you did complete or nearly complete um, including a draft of a novel about a murder and a database of all books printed in English in England in 1609. I'm not trying to butter you up here but it does seem to me that you actually do get quite a lot of things done so do you feel like you get a lot 
a lot done or do you think of yourself as a serial non-finisher? I don't think of myself as a serial non-finisher, though I am interested, as this article suggests, in incomplete projects. I think I work at lots of things at the same time. I think that's the, that's the key to all these cast-offs. I was probably working on several of them at the same time and countless others that are unrecorded at the same time. So they're the kind of byproduct, I think, of having many balls in the air at one time, which is how I've always worked and like to work and probably will always work. So do you feel okay about leaving projects incomplete then in that case? I think I have grown to become comfortable with it. And I think about, you know, I've been writing stuff in various forms for about 20 years, 25 years or so. And definitely early on, I was super anxious about completion. And we live now in a academic world that has very little tolerance for the unfinished, I think, and demands completion and impact and output and all these horrendous words. Um, and there's not much scope for the digressive or the error prone or the unfinished or even to a degree to the speculative, I think. Mm. And the scaffolding needs to be pretty secure um, for a project to be funded or taken seriously or under, undertaken. So I think it's tough in the early stages of a career to not feel that stress to finish. And I definitely, yeah. uh, in my 20s, was uh, worried about finishing things much more than I am am now. Yeah. Well, that idea of your attitude to finishing things or completing things, developing, ties in quite well with something that you said in your article, which I found really lovely, which was that a particular form of autobiography could be written by listing unrealised projects. I wondered if you could explain a little bit more what you meant by that. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in I'm interested in life writing, autobiographical, the long history of that mm. as a mode, and particularly the surprising or overlooked or slightly left field ways in which people have made records of their lives. And I mm. come at this primarily as an early modernist working on the 16th and 17th century, when autobiography wasn't re- even formalised as a genre. So people did all kinds of strange things, notebooks, diaries, financial accounts, commonplace books, scribblings in the margins as ways to build something that we would probably later call life writing or autobiography. So I'm interested in thinking about finding ways or new, fresh ways to get at um, a sense of a life. And I'm always conscious of the, of the I don't know, the, the flatness of conventional modes of, of, of life writing. And I've been listening, kind of in that register, I've been listening to a, reading and listening to a, a novel by Sean Ashton, mm. a writer based at Leeds Beckett University called Living in a Land, yeah. um, came out a couple of years ago, which is an account of someone's life, maybe the authors, certainly the narrators, expressed entirely through negative statements, things that have not been done. And I found it very addictive and beguiling and suggestive. I've never relented, he says. I've never waxed. I've never waned. I've never been handed a broken toy. I've never dieted or bulked up. There's this wonderful, surreal kind of Borgesian, a kind of vernacular version of Borges, of a list of seemingly miscellaneous things that he hasn't done, that they gradually cohere through time into this portrait in negative of this speaker's life. And I really like that idea, rather like removing bits of a stone to create a sculpture. He was kind of pinning down the things that haven't been achieved, the paths not taken. Yeah. And it struck me how powerful that became as a way of suggesting a life in the space within all these dead ends or paths not taken. So that's what I was initially thinking about. And really, I, I think one of the motives for 
putting this list of 23 unfinished projects together for me was to see if there were refrains or patterns or what they did suggest about me, about how coherent they were as a group. I love the list as a form, and I think there's something to be said about the list being the form for the unfinished project. Yeah in that lists are themselves by their nature, never finish, never complete. I think if a complete list is a kind of contradiction and there's always more stuff you can add in and there's a sort of hopelessness in that and there's a generosity in that that I find really interesting. So I put all these topics down to try and, I guess, see if there was a pattern or a shape or where they were coming from or what they suggested. And did you find a pattern or a shape to them? Well, I saw certain things that kept on coming up. I saw certain projects that I thought had died that re-emerged sometimes decades later. I got some way in about 1999, which is at the beginning of the list, 98, 99. Mm. And I was living in glamorous Dollis Hill in Northwest London. And they, mm. incidentally, these things are hooked to place in time in a very vivid way. Uh, and I founded a, 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 a magazine, a literary review, review with a friend called Print. And I remember advertising in Time Out because this was virtually a pre-digital moment. Yeah. Uh, the first theme was blasphemy. Okay. And then we got, I don't know if it was hundreds, but certainly dozens and dozens of mostly unreadable uh, submissions, mm-hmm. strange drawings, poems, <laughs> essays. And I think I have them still in a folder somewhere. But then the, we didn't have enough money to fund it and it kind of dribbled out. But that, but, but, but last year I did start a, a, a similar kind of publication called Inscription, yeah. which was a, a material text journal. And it had some of the same interest. So that's one. One one pattern is that things go underground, sometimes for 25 years, mm. and then re-emerge, and you realise that interest hasn't died and it's reappeared. And then there are certain interests that are like refrains that appear across a number of items. I realised I was interested in things in the future and things in the past, speculating about those. And I was realised, I kind of knew it, but it, but it, but it solidified it. I realised I'm interested in figures on the margins on the edge one of the projects was a going to be a biography of kind of figures right on the edge of renaissance culture who we know a little bit about but not much one of them was about an article which i quite like and still quite like but i never did um, an article about individuals who refuse to speak who refuse to tell what they know so people yeah. like Aaron and titus andronicus and iago and othello most famously i never will speak word there were some patterns that, that emerged that weren't entirely apparent to me before I wrote the list. Of the 23 projects that you did list, are there any that you're either glad that you didn't do or that you regret not doing in particular? Well, definitely. both. I mean, both of those categories. Yeah. Glad that I didn't do definitely, definitely the campus comedy novel. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. It sounded great. Which was a draft. So, I mean, it is 80,000 words of campus comedy novel. Yeah. But I I realised subsequently just how entangled up it was with my job at the time, Mm. which is not my job now. In fact, it was a couple of jobs ago. Uh, And the people at work, and I realised the novel was a way of... And it was quite funny, I think, and it was all right, although it's probably a slightly exhausted genre. It was... was, I needed to take my frustrations with my colleagues somewhere else, somewhere more private, and not deposit them in a campus comedy novel. So I'm very glad... (laughs) that elsewhere, well, that stalled. And in fact, because it was probably about seven or eight computers ago, I don't even know where it is as a digital thing. I think it is a printout somewhere in a, yeah. in a, in a cupboard somewhere. The thing that I would most like to go on to do 
Well, I, I with a friend just outside Oxford, we started to record a podcast about a fairly shocking but also kind of riveting murder of a taxi driver that took place in the summer of 1990. Okay. During a World Cup in Italy, outside Oxford, a taxi driver picked up a customer, a client from a station in Oxford, and drove about 20 minutes and then was found murdered by his taxi and no one was ever caught. The police pursued it. And there are various kind of haunting leads that we got to by speaking to police inspectors and colleagues of the man who was killed. And that that is kind of somewhere hovering between unfinished and pending. And I think what might happen if one day we do finish that first episode, we might launch it into the world and see if it rings any bells for anyone. Yeah. So that that's the one I hope does materialise because I think there's some real life, real life in that one. That sounds like it's the sort of thing that would also be quite popular at the moment in particular. There's a, there's yeah. a kind of true crime genre. I think it would. It was interesting. And it's, it's you know, there were some ethical issues about the family that we had to clear. Yeah. But I think it's, yeah, I think there's definitely some, there's a future in that one. And just while we're talking about the actual projects on the list, I, I well, I really struggled to pick favourites, but there were a few that I really liked. One was... Um, an edited collection of essays on early modern secrets, mm. a non-fiction book about fatherhood and a co-written article on archival failures. And I have to say the last one I found really intriguing about, I mean, what is an archival failure for a start? Yeah, that's right. That got very, very little way along before it died. <laughs> These are all written in different modes as well. That one was written with a colleague in New York when I was in London on email. Okay. And we were both very kind of, we are and were both very kind of archival heavy scholars. We mm. spent a lot of time in libraries and rare book rooms and local archives and local history centres. And it was going to be partly, I think, about not finding what you want, but the redemptive kind of turn was that you find other stuff instead. And that really went back to um, a book I wrote in 2010 about, about life writing and about autobiographies and about diaries. Okay. I was convinced I would find a kind of provincial version of Peeps somewhere out there in these local archive centres. And I went on this tour around various small local history centres, calling up everything that seemed to be catalogued as diary or autobiography. Yeah. And at first there was this tremendous sense of bathos or failure when I didn't get diaries or autobiographies at all. <laughs> I got these wonderful boxes full of prospect, but they were papers, notes, financial accounts, yeah. um, letters, almanacs printed almanacs which had annotations in and I thought well this isn't going anywhere but then I realized actually this is very interesting these are the forms that are the prehistory of these categories there's something to do with subjectivity and self-representation but they're not our tidy familiar forms and so it turned into something really interesting and I guess that's that's one important lesson to take from at least archival failure and maybe failure in general like the sense of it of the dead end of hitting the wall is possibly a dead end and hitting the ball, but it might be the question that the project yeah. is, is about. And, and and that certainly wasn't the case. And then I was able to kind of reframe it and turn it into an, a book about all of these sort of proto-diary forms. Yeah. And I want to ask you about literary literariness and failure later yeah. on, actually, because I listened to your podcast episode on that as well. Uh, but a few questions left first on mm. non-complete projects. You mentioned a little while ago the idea that for you, incomplete projects are tied to particular times and places. And the example you give in the article is being um, in the tea room of the Folgers Shakespeare Library in DC. 
the day before the September 11th attacks. And I was wondering if I could ask you to say a little bit more about why you feel that incomplete work is tied to particular moments. Yeah, it's it's a good question and it's, it's hard to work out, but it's absolutely definitely the case. I mean, that, that particular example, number two on the list, yeah. as you say, an edited collection of essays on early modern secrets. Like I remember the two colleagues I was talking to about it, Andy and James, they were called, well, they are called still, in fact. <laughs> and yeah, I was in the Shakespeare, the Folger Shakespeare Library, which is in Washington, D.C., bizarrely right near the Capitol. Yeah. So the place we've seen, you know, on our screens very recently. And it's this amazing library, Bardolatrus Library in some ways, in that it's built around Shakespeare, but just mm. a wonderful, wonderful research centre. Um, and I was there for a couple of months over the summer of 2001. And yeah, this was the this was September the tenth. That I was there on September the eleventh, and that's a whole other strange article about what happened on that day, yeah. which involves carrying a portrait of Elizabeth I down into the vaults for for preservation. Wow. But that, that's, that's that's perhaps another podcast. But the, when I think about that book on early modern secrets, which really got only as far, I remember James had a big bo- a literal box at that point yeah. in which he would drop notes and and ideas and scraps of paper, and I remember coming back to it and there was a, a feeble single sheet where we scribbled some thoughts down. So the product was pretty pathetic, but it's linked very, very vividly to that moment, to that place and that time. I think it's got something to do with the fact precisely because it was never completed and the project never achieved material form. It was never put into a book or an article or even a talk or even really a coherent idea at all. Yeah. But what? But precisely because of that, what remains is this, exciting the excitement of the pro- process of the prospect of the putting the idea in james's big box or even though we never came back to it and had it been completed if i think about books i have written or articles that i've finished or things that are virtually tidily dispatched yeah. that image of the whatever form it takes erases or represses perhaps represses is the best word mm-hmm. the process that's gone before and the struggle and the first idea if I think about an article I've written that is in print, it's much less vividly hooked to a moment in time or to a place, I think. Whereas if I think about the ones like the secrets that went nowhere, I think because all I have or because of what I vividly have is is that moment of writing and thinking. I think the place and the time is, is brought back very strongly. And since it's come up, I have to ask you, I think, about the early modern secrets. What What were the secrets? Well, we were interested in... Invisible Ink, I remember. And this is 25 years ago. I have got very recollection okay. <laughs> yes. We were interested in Invisible Ink and writing in lemon juice. And I think we were looking at some papers in the Folger that had letters that you couldn't read except by perilously holding candles, burning candles to them. I think that's where it began. Wow. Um, you know, there's a book for someone, a historical novel. And there's a challenge, actually, for reading the texts if you have to have a candle. <laughs> Yeah, and a challenge for the librarians. And yeah, exactly. Library. Yes, they, they seem self-destructive and entirely secret. One of the questions behind this podcast is what it actually means for something to be not finished. And in your article, you raise a similar question because you say that none of the projects you've listed were ever realised, but that you probably need to think more about what that term means. And mm. I wondered if you have thought more about what that means. Well, this list, looking over this list of incomplete projects, it's apparent for, I think, almost all of them, how they fed into something else, how they fed into a 
another project or how I was writing or thinking in the wrong genre or the wrong form about the topic. And that topic might find expression later on in a fitter form. I was really interested in, and still I'm interested in, the little Anglican religious community from the 17th century around Little Gidding outside Cambridge, which is this rather eccentric kind of part household, part university, part Anglican monastery where they produced interesting cut and paste Bibles. One of the items on my unfinished projects was a, a trade book about that, which nearly worked, then didn't. And then the, there was nearly a radio program about it, and then there was nearly a TV program about it, and they all kind of didn't work. But in the end, I did what I should have done from the start, which is I wrote an article in a conventional academic journal, and that was okay. that was the right form for it. So in that instance, it was about shuffling my way through various rather more glamorous possible iterations of this thing yeah. before realising that it has to come to that particular form. So these failures are in some ways wrestling with an ill fit and they might come back in a, in, a, in a better fit. So I think they can all be redeemed in some way, but I'm actually quite interested in the in the opposite in a way. I'm interested in the idea of what it would mean for these to be absolute and total failed projects or abandoned projects. There's that, and just how difficult it is to really get your head around that idea, how strong that redemptive urge is, yeah. how strong it, the temptation or the drive to say, as I just have, they turn into something else, they go underground, they re-emerge. This is a way of thinking through over time until you find a fit form. I think that's all true, and it's all worth thinking about those things as one thinks about one's own notional failures. But there must be some projects which are absolute dead ends, and it's interestingly difficult to stay with that idea without turning away and saying, oh, five years later I designed a T-shirt with that picture on, or whatever it is. Yeah. I think you're so right because, I mean, probably most people who I've interviewed for this podcast have said, oh, well, I had this thing and I abandoned it, but then it sort of re-emerged in a, in a future project. I think it, yeah. I think you're right. It's a really common urge to do that. I think it is. And even the, even the act of listing them in this article form turns them into something, aestheticizes yes. them maybe, or yeah. gives, them, gives them an expression. And there are countless entirely failed abandoned projects out there to remain in that state, they just need to remain out there, I think. Yeah, yeah. And what you were saying there about the idea that abandoned projects feed into other projects, or at least that we think, we like to think that they do, um, yeah. tie, ties in really well to an episode of your podcast that you did, which was on literary failure. The podcast is called Lit Bits. And there was a lot of crossover between what you were saying in the podcast and things that come up on, on this show. And... You talk about failure contributing to the writing process and also to our image of writers. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think there's a there's a powerful um, sense within culture of the writer as a, of a struggling figure, as an impoverished figure, as an outsider figure, down on his or her luck. And there are certain important books that contribute to that image and the one that came to mind when I was having a, a conversation with, with James Kidder, who I did the Lit Bits podcast with, was uh, New Grub Street, George Gissing's New Grub Street from 1891, isn't it, I think, which is all about 1880s London and the aspiring author, the literary life, Edward Reardon, who's so brilliantly turned into that Radio 4 comedy, Ed Reardon's Week, mm. 
much more recently, but Edward Reardon, who's quite good and quite talented, but has um, no commercial prospects as a yeah. result. And there are a number of books like that from that time, I think, that contribute to that sense of the the struggle of the writer, the lost years, the sacrifices that are yeah. required. And I think we have a problem as a culture with kind of silver spoon writers who slot too easily into a life of mm. publishing success. One of the reasons I think Martin Amos got so much flack in the 90s, uh, well, there are lots of reasons, but one is that he's the son of Kingsley Amos and it's all on a plate in a way, if that's yeah. the case. You described in the podcast some famous examples of writers who supposedly came up with their best-selling ideas very easily. And a famous example would be J.K. Rowling's story about how she came up with Harry Potter, I think, while sitting mm. on a train. And I was interested in what you think of that idea that the process of writing can happen with ease or very easily. Do you think we should be sceptical about that? Yeah, I don't really believe believe that. I think yeah. it might be the case that the final writing moment comes easily and it might be the case that well certainly there are writers who are very fluent but if it's a meaningful work then it's been kind of being turned over for, for a long time but I think we like that idea just as we like the idea culturally of the impoverished writer like Ed Reed and we like the idea of the genius author who writes it immediately and with no problem and that's a fascinating cultural history over many centuries the accumulation of that version of genius I think and one crucial point in that history is Shakespeare, of course, and Shakespeare's first folio, which is his printed bound collection, posthumous collection of works from 1623, in which the editors Hemming and Condell, who are his former friends, actor colleagues, gather his printed plays, not his poems, but his printed plays, and present them as a, co a coherent collection, which at that time is still quite a weird thing to do and had to be explained. And they give a fascinating portrait of Shakespeare as a writer in the preface and they say among other things that he Shakespeare never blotted a line is what they say mm. he never blotted a line which I don't believe for a moment I mean everything we know about early modern writers and the, the manuscripts that survived suggest and the whole theory of early modern creativity which was built around imitation and trial and retrial it, that's just not plausible but it's it's an idea of the author that's emerging at that point I think there's an interesting long history there about ideas of authorship and creativity and genius, which are which are not documents of how writing actually gets done, yeah. but they are expressions of how we like to imagine writing and think about writing. And while we're on the subject of Shakespeare and, and co, you mentioned on the podcast as well about the anxiety that writers can feel about their own work in comparison to predecessors. And the example that you talk about is Milton feeling anxious about Shakespeare. Yeah. I think that that kind of anxiety might be quite a big barrier for writers maybe starting projects or completing projects, whether for you or for writers in general. Yeah, so that that, that poem you mentioned, uh, which is usually called On Shakespeare, 1630 by John Milton, is Milton's description of Shakespeare's brilliance, genius, talents. And it begins, what needs my Shakespeare for his honoured bones? And it's about why we don't need a monument. Yeah or a great tomb to Shakespeare. And the answer Milton gives is because the genius of Shakespeare and Shakespeare himself li lives on in his writing and in his book. And then it has this strange turn in the second half where Milton describes the effect of reading Shakespeare as a too intense experience. Yeah. He says, does make us marble with too much conceiving. Does make us marble with too much conceiving. In other words, when we read Shakespeare, we think too intensely, too much it's like our hard drive freezes and we're turned to stone. 
And so it's this terrifying portrait by Milton, and who at that point is not known as, as an emerging poet. This is his first printed publication, yeah. working out a way to be a writer in the shadow of Shakespeare and clearly petrified, I mean, literally petrified, turned to marble here. It's a, it's a fascinating poem, not least, incidentally, given that last year, for the first time, scholars identified Milton's copy of Shakespeare's first folio oh, wow. covered in Milton's annotations. So it's a lovely juxtaposition. We have this poem of youthful ambition, which is terrified by Shakespeare. But now, and really only in the last few months, we have this copy of Shakespeare's works covered with annotations by Milton, which is really a might be seen as a, a, a document of a one brilliant writer, Milton, trying to work out how to progress when Shakespeare had done what he has done. And does that resonate for you? Do you ever find that you think... Um, I mean, I know some of my previous guests have said that they fear that someone else might do their project better or could do their project better than they have done or that it won't be as good in reality as they think it might be in their head. Do you ever come up against that? Oh, I, I mean, I, I definitely feel that people could do what I do better and more compellingly. Um, but I'm not really too worried about that. Yeah. I I think when I, when I wrote, and maybe still... I. I write a lot, I work a lot through imitation, maybe because I've read lots of Renaissance guides to how to write, which is <laughs> important. So, I, so I've, I think my writing at various points, both creative writing and critical writing, has been consciously or sometimes unconsciously shaped by other voices. Mm. You know, everyone has a Raven, Raymond Carver stage or a Stephen Greenblatt stage where you try and, mm. you can't help but sounding a bit like those people. Yeah. And then you stick with that for a while and then hopefully you come out the other, I mean, it's bad if you're locked in forever, but hopefully you come out the other side and you cast them aside and some things remain. Yeah. Some, you take what you can from that experience and then you and then you move on. So that's, that, I suppose that's a better description of my relationship with much cleverer, more illustrious, more successful people writing in my field is that I sort of try them out for a bit and see what sticks for me and then move on to another because there's always another model to try yeah that's a less stressful yeah. that's a less stressful version particularly if you focus on the casting off moment which is kind of triumphant yeah that sounds much healthier <laughs> <laughs> um earlier in our conversation you said that there might be totally abandoned or totally failed projects that should remain hidden but you also speculated on your podcast that there might be writers out there today who we've never heard of but who have brilliant unpublished works sitting in their houses that will be discovered in the future and be highly valued. Do you think that we often overlook texts which then turn out to be very valuable later on? Oh, definitely, all the time. I remember very, very vividly, I mean, that thought, I remember having that thought years ago and on TV, it was the, it was the time when the Booker Prize used to be live on TV. It shows you how culture our cultural investments have shifted. Um, and Mar I think Margaret, At yeah, Margaret Atwood won it that year. I think it was the Booker Prize, whatever year that was. And she gave this nice speech, which concluded with her saying, somewhere out there right now, someone is struggling with a draft of a book they think is going to go nowhere, but it's going to become the winner of this prize in 30 years' time. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such a nice and generous way to respond to her moment of triumph. So I think that is the case, like right now, <laughs> you know, those those prospects are out there somewhere and they will materialise. And one of the consolations and 
wonderful features of literary history is that our investments change and that books rise and fall and authors rise and fall. I tend to think in time, the texts we value are the right ones, probably in the long term, but in the short term, there are wild misjudgments and interlopers and people who are overlooked. And it's great to look back on those moments when aspiring writers who would go on to become brilliant canonical figures were cast aside. And it's usually a case of of a talented female author writing to a senior male and the male behaving like a buffoon and aggressively (laughs) trivialising them. The most, I mean, the, the famous example is Charlotte Bronte sending her poems to Robert Southey, who was the poet laureate at the time, not that anyone knows that now or cares. And this is about t- 10 years before Jane Eyre, 1847. And then Southey writes back, literature cannot be the business of a woman's life and it ought not to be. The more she's yeah. engaged in her proper duties, the less leisure will she have for it, even as an accomplishment and a recreation. And almost from that moment, you feel if there's justice in the world, Southey, Southey starts to drop like a stone and Bronte is heading for the telos of Jane Eyre 10 years later. And then the, the writers who are not known in their lifetime, who now posthum, entirely posthumously have, a, yeah. have, have achieved it, like Gerald Manny Hopkins, John Kennedy Toole, who wrote Confeder- Confederacy of Dunces from his mother's house and never saw it being published, committed suicide because of its notional failure. And now it's this great Pulitzer Prize winning masterpiece. So literary history is, is full of those reorganizations and those corrections yeah. to bad judgments by men in position of power (laughs) generally it seems to be it's difficult to know if that's a comforting thought or not really because in a way it's nice that eventually they do get recognition but especially in the example that you gave yeah you know really terrible that they that they didn't at the time yeah that's right just to return to the idea more generally of abandoning projects or not finishing them I wondered what you think would happen if the pressure that you talked about to get things finished, you, you, you mentioned it in an academic context, but I think it's in other places as well, as well. What would happen if the pressure to finish were lifted? Well, I think things would look quite, quite different, I think. And I think there would be lots of, uh, there will be far fewer short-term outputs or finished articles, but there might be some very, very interesting long-term mm. projects that need that space in that time it's so hard to have the courage to stick with a really really long time project i think now mm. I mean, within academia all the pressure is against that i mean to announce that you're in, you're going to you know go on some 20 year project editing something or writing some huge book everyone in a senior position would advise you against that these days mm. and even outside academia that's such an act of of, of kind of bravery that it takes a kind of remarkable individual to stick with it but i think if we remove that the, the pressure to the pressure to finish has lots of benefits to it there are good, it's good things i've finished and put in the world but yeah but there's a terrible meanness to it too a kind of punitive mm. a punitive kind of pushing us out of the room before we finish what we need to say that i think we need to you know think about And one of the things that can be really difficult when working on any creative project is knowing when it's finished and deciding to kind of stop tinkering with it. Do you find that or do you have an inherent sense of when a project is finished and you need to stop? I think 
I think I feel it in the opposite, from a reverse direction in a way, because I think such is such as some of those pressures we have been describing to finish and to complete and to get your RAF things in and yeah. that um, it's tempting to finish things too early. I feel that I feel that pressure quite powerfully. Yeah. And so I really, really try when I think I've finished something to not decide that that is the case and to keep it open and alive for as long as I can. And in practical terms, that means if I write an article, I don't send it off immediately, but I put it away ideally for some weeks or even months, and then come back to it. And after that period of being away and coming back to it, then it is immediately apparent to me whether it's done or not, yeah. or whether it still has something underdeveloped in it. For me, the kind of the courageous move, the difficult move is to keep it open yeah, okay. and to keep it alive. And that, and that pragmatic, but I think ultimately cowardly one is to put the, uh, last footnote on and send it off to some journal even though it's not quite done yeah and and do you feel comfortable sharing projects that you are keeping open and that you haven't definitively finished yeah I uh definitely I love work in progress I like circulating my own I like reading other people's work in progress yeah. uh I mean I love the fragment the revised copy the draft I, I like all of those as forms I love diaries as forms um and I've been I think deliberately trying to find ways to offer less polished versions of my writing um, to readers. And one of the, re the, the the list that you referred to that I've put of unfinished projects is on this Substack site, which I like because it's a way of writing about, you know, something like weekly short essays pretty quickly with no real concern with, um, certainly no concern with footnotes and referencing and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. but but just seeing where those go. I'm, I'm enjoying that. And I'd started that Lipbits podcast yeah. about 10 years ago for that same reason, trying to find a, a slightly more speculative, open-ended mode. I think there's lots of interesting discussion right now within literary studies, certainly, probably within other disciplines too, but I don't know those, within literary studies, thinking about how we write, whether they're kind of naturalised, gold star, the monograph, single author monograph published by OUP, that kind of, you know, yeah. whether that is really the most appropriate way to think about stuff and write about stuff and communicate stuff. Mm. So I like these other forms. And for some people, I mean, some people are amazing on Twitter. Yeah. Some people are, I used to do Facebook, I don't need more, but some people were incredibly smart and funny and artful on that and that really was their genre you know they found yeah they found their form there's a um guy called, called Stephen guy bray who's an early modernist in canada on twitter he's unbelievably <laughs> funny and smart and everything he tweets has thousands of responses and i, I kind of think that's his form i mean he writes books yeah. as well but he's he's, yeah. he's found it so i like yeah i like this idea of um thinking about different genres of writing and, and testing them out and seeing how they can enable you to have a slightly more up in the air mode. It's so freeing. Uh, several guests have said similar things that they really like doing creative work or intellectual work or artistic work that's kind of adjacent to, but separate from their day job as it were. Yeah. I'm conscious, I'm conscious as I'm saying that, though, that it is in some ways a benefit of maybe a luxury of having a permanent job, you know, a tenured job in American terms. And I think, yeah. It's it's harder to sustain that wide-eyed speculative enthusiasm yeah. when you've got to get your articles done and out before you're even shortlisted, let alone get a job. 
So I think it's important to it would be it's important with the academy to think about ways in which all of the virtues of that more expansive thinking can be made, you know, plausible um, and useful to every to everyone at all stages of their career. And not, you know, there's that terrible moment in an academic's career when they suddenly start publishing their own poetry and everyone's all their colleagues' heart sinks and, and that they become a poet. And sometimes that's good, but often it's not good. And the, but it is often a luxury of having the permanent job and deciding you don't fancy Milton anymore that you want to write your haiku. So I think everyone needs to have those opportunities. Okay, so I just have one final question, which is about the enthusiasm that you mentioned when you were talking about kind of the privilege of being able to explore different forms. And I just wonder, do you have any reflections on why enthusiasm for a project is sometimes maintained and sometimes it leaks away? Well, that's a really good question. I think I think one can build all kinds of scaffolding around a project and create all kinds of sensible props, prompts, like you can do it with someone else who's full of drive and beans, or you can lock into some kind of timetable by agreeing to present a talk or agreeing to submit at a certain point. And that's all helpful. That kind of pulls you along. And I always try and do that yeah. and kind of thread the prospect of the writing to come across a number of events that are going to happen to ensure that um, I get pulled along. But I think f- fundamentally, if if you're not feeling it, it's really hard yeah, it's really hard to keep going, and it may be that if you have a kind of selective, discriminating uh, failure to write. In other words, if there are some projects you can write and some projects you can't, it may be that that difficulty is 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 the right call, and that you need to put it away. Yeah. So I think I think stopping projects and leaving them for a while, or even failing, that might be that might be the right response in some ways to what's to what's to what you're trying to do. Hello? Oh, sorry, I lost you. I don't know. I don't know how, how much you got of that. <laughs>